0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
2: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
4: They put the five-year-old kids in a room with one marshmallow. And then I think they did it on like 600 kids. They told the kids, you can either have this one marshmallow now or if you have enough self-control to not eat this marshmallow for 15 minutes and sit here with it and you delay your gratification 15 minutes, if you can do that, then, you know, we'll reward you with two marshmallows. And one third of the kids were able to have enough self-control to delay their gratification for that second marshmallow. Mm -hmm. But then they followed those kids for 20, 30 years and they found they were more successful based on a number of measures, whether it was higher SAT and ACT scores, got higher salaries, were more popular with their peers, had less drug and alcohol problems, were more healthy, um, lower BMIs, like every single thing, you know, they linked it to the trait of self-control. So I think the big takeaway for anyone, whether you're going through the educational system and trying to study Or you're an entrepreneur trying to work on a business um, or you're a professional doing your day job. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest takeaways is try to cultivate self-control.
5: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Sean, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Srini. I appreciate it. I'm excited to spend some time together.
5: Yeah. It is my pleasure to have you here. So, uh, I came across your story by way of your publicist and there was so much about it that I I found interesting. I mean, the, the list of accolades, as I was saying before here, were really impressive. You know, one of my best friends from college always says, he was like, your sister is like every Indian parents dream come true. And he's like, and and my response was, I'm like every Indian parents nightmare come true. (laughs) Um, and I think you fall into the every Indian parents dream come true category, but we'll get into all of that. (laughs) Um, I, I want to start with you know, just from what, what I knew about your background from having read about it with what I think is a really fitting and, and relevant question, that is where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
4: Yeah, it's actually very interesting. I had somewhat of a typical or an atypical, I should say, upbringing for the average American, but in the same way I've had somewhat of a typical upbringing for the average Indian American. And I say that because, you know, I grew up in a budget motel in Las Vegas, Nevada. So my parents, you know, like many uh, immigrants and Indian Americans, especially, they immigrated from the United States in the 80s, didn't really have much. uh, And, you know, they were trying to build a life for themselves. And, they ended up purchasing a motel in sort of the ghetto of Las Vegas. And, you know, when everyone thinks of Vegas, they think of all of the glitz and the glamour of the strip of Vegas, and they think it would be really fun. But, uh, you know, this budget motel is kind of in the ghetto part of Vegas where no one really would want to go. And that was an interesting setting because we had on one side like – a lot of gangs, drug dealers, police, prostitutes in the area that I was growing up. But on the other side, I had like your traditional Hindu, Indian, American family that valued education, religion, etc. And so, you know, as you know, young as seven, eight years old, I was renting motel rooms and living Uh, in this sort of setting. And so it was interesting, because I think it did inform a lot of what I do now, and how I grew up in my view of the world. And I say that because, you know, as we all get into my story, uh, you know, I am both a physician and an entrepreneur. So I sort of have a healthcare background. And I have a entrepreneurial background. And growing up in a motel informed a lot of that, because I watched my dad grow up doing the exact same thing. My dad was both a pharmacist as well mm. as a entrepreneur who owned the motel as well as the gas station that he eventually bought a couple doors down. I mean, it was like you know, basically fitting every Indian stereotype. We owned a motel, <laughs> we owned a gas station, I'm becoming a doctor, you know, it's like yeah. it there couldn't be more classic. And yeah. uh, so that was interesting because my dad would wake up at 5 a.m to go to the pharmacy at, to be there by 6 a.m and he would work there till 2 p.m then he would come home take a little break work at the motel or actually we worked at the gas station from like 3 p.m to 9 p.m then come back to the motel and spend his last couple of hours from 10 to 11 working at the motel and You know, he was just nonstop working six days a week. And I think, you know, people ask me, like, why do you work so hard? How do you how do you find the time to work on a business and and be a doctor? And it's like that was like sort of built into my upbringing and where I was growing up and who I was looking up to, which was my father, in that he was both a healthcare professional and an entrepreneur and that kind of informed where I am and what I do today and my my sort of worldview.
5: So, I mean, you're growing up with these two dramatic contrasts of, you know, like you said, gangs and prostitutes and drugs and all this stuff. And I I can't imagine you just, you know, basically were sheltered from that completely, right? Like, did you have interactions with that part of your environment and how in the world did you not succumb to it? And, and, you know, what did you learn from people in those environments that most of us might have as, as misperceptions about their lives?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great question. One, I would say, is the biggest misperception that people have about people who live in poverty. I mean, because if you think about the budget motel that I was at, most of these people were not there because they wanted to be there. They were there because they had to be there. They didn't make enough money. To have a steady income that they could pay a monthly lease at an apartment. Um, they were living literally paycheck to paycheck, uh, buying weekly room rentals at the motel, and that was like their home. And the, I'd say the biggest misconception that a lot of people have is that people live in this situation or, or in poverty because of their own choices. And it's, it's really not that they're built, they are born into an environment where everything is set up against them, whether it's the educational system, the family system, um, you know, the drugs that are around, et cetera, that they are literally forced into this situation of poverty. And, and poverty is not really a choice. It's really something that it gets forced upon a lot of people and it's really hard to dig yourself out of. In terms of your question on how did I avoid getting pulled into a lot of that, uh, you know, I think one is definitely my family. I mean, my parents tried to shelter me as much as possible from this. I think it was difficult because, you know, they weren't always around. Like I mentioned, my dad was often working. My mom was the same way. Uh, You know, she was often at the gas station. And so because they weren't around, you know, I would interact with Um, people at the motel, um, you know, whether it was people that were actually in gangs or drug dealers or whatever, because I was renting rooms to them. Uh Um, And so, you know, I think I learned very early on um, things that a typical eight-year-old or 10-year-old or 12-year-old wouldn't really understand or be exposed to, you know, I would see people... Uh, renting motel rooms for like two hours with prostitutes. And I figured out quickly why people wanted hourlies and, you know, this kind of craziness that was going on. And it's like, you know, a 10 year old shouldn't be exposed to that. But I certainly was. I think one thing I really realized was that education was so, so important because I I did n- notice that the one thing that would separate um, those living at the motel and those that I, did see who were doing better in life, Uh, you know, a lot of my family friends um, or my parents' friends who were doctors, lawyers, engineers, et cetera, was education. And so I think that really made a big difference to me in that I knew that if I could just get a good education, it didn't matter that I was, you know, in the worst school district in the nation. Um, You know, Vegas is not the best place to to get an education because people grow up and you're in high school and the Bellagio, like one of the major casinos will pay you $70,000 a year as a high school student to park valet cars, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, why would you continue to go through college and high school? And so we have like a 40% dropout rate, but you know, it's, it was for me at least combination of, seeing people with no education and seeing sort of the dire poverty that they were living in. Uh And then two was obviously the Indian American sort of mentality and that education is super valuable. It's the gateway and the key to financial uh, freedom and sort of increasing your quality of life. And I think that's instilled into a lot of us that are South Asian. Absolutely. So I think Um, that, I I don't know if you, yeah, go go ahead.
5: I have a lot to say about that, but I, I want to come back to that because I think that this will be probably one of the most informative parts of our conversation. Um, it, you know, I, I think that the uh, what I wonder about is what are your friendships like in this environment? I mean, you're still a kid. So, I mean, you went to school in this environment. What are the people that you went to school with? What are the people that you grew up with? Like, and are you still in touch with them? Like, what are their perceptions of your life now? Has the fact that you've gone out and done all these amazing things changed those relationships?
4: Yeah, it's interesting, right? So, <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning that I had sort of a very typical Indian American background or upbringing. And I say that because a lot of my friendships growing up were with other kids whose parents owned or operated motels. Um, And a lot of times that would be other Indian Americans. And so those were sort of my closest friends. And And I say that because, you know, at school... I was so, so embarrassed to reveal that, you know, I lived in a motel. It's like a hard thing for a eight-year-old or a 10-year-old to reveal to their friends at school that, you know, I live in a motel room and then you have to sort of explain why and, you know, it's like, well, so do you rent motel rooms? Do you clean motel rooms? Do you do this? And it's like, you didn't want like the 21 questions, you know? So I would never really tell anyone where I lived. I wanted to be just like everyone else who lived in an apartment or a house, etc. So what ended up happening is I formed a very close bond to other kids who lived in a similar situation. So the kids in the motel next to me, the kids in the motel across the street, and we all sort of had this similar understanding of like, oh, I get it. Your parents also own or operate a motel. You do not necessarily fit into a demographic that lives in a motel weekly, uh, like many of the people that, uh, you know, rent rooms at our motels. But, you know, it wasn't anything that we had to explain. And we had this shared understanding. So in terms of, uh, you know, I'd say most of my friends growing up were kids whose parents owned other motels. And they have also, you know, we were actually just talking about this when I was visiting home in Vegas a couple of weeks ago. They have all done amazingly well. There's something about being a motel kid that I think <laughs> drives you to do well. Like, I, I mean, I've done well, but I mean, everyone has like, they've become physicians, they become lawyers, they have, uh, you know, started businesses everyone did really, really well. And, you know, everyone's kind of in their late twenties, early thirties now from my particular friend group. And I think there was a level of focus that we all had that we, Mm -hmm. I think we all actually kind of wanted to get out of that ghetto that we were living in. And now, I mean, most of our parents live in the suburbs, very few of them still own the motel and You know, we would see our other Indian American friends who, um, you know, had these really nice houses in the suburbs and their parents were usually doctors, engineers, uh, you know, professionals. And so we I think we sort of pursued a lot of those careers ourselves because we saw that and what was Mm -hmm. possible. I mean, we didn't we didn't like growing up in little motel rooms with, uh, you know, roaches and rats and water leaks and electrical outages like, you know, that sucked. Um, So, you know, we really have all done amazingly well so i'd say i'm i'm not the exception i'm actually sort of the rule for motel kids interesting
5: i want to come back to the education thing because i know this is a huge part of what you do i mean and you know there there are numerous reasons why i want to discuss this because i I, you know like i'm not going to you know uh challenge the value of education but i will challenge the structure of education in its current form you know like I you know it's like you said you get a typical Indian American kid we are encouraged to pursue an education, get good grades. It was, you know, we're not the the kids whose parents put cards on, you know, report cards in the refrigerator when we didn't get A's. I remember having this conversation with my dad. It was like, you know, hey, there's a kid at school who gets a $5 for every A. He's like, yeah, you get a meal every night. This negotiation is over. (laughs) Yeah,
4: Yeah. exactly.
5: It was like, okay. And the thing is that, you know, my ongoing joke is that I'm a failed byproduct of the education system. Now, the reason I say you know, if you look at sort of my performance post high school, it was abysmal. Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't smart. It wasn't that I was motivated, but I was just not smart in the context you needed to be to thrive in an academic environment. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, you know, there, there are a couple of things here that I I really want to ask you about. Um, One is, you know, what are your views on modern education? And particularly because you overcame some incredible odds, you know, from what I know, you like had just, we went from, I don't remember the exact numbers, but you went to like a perfect score on the SAT. And I I think this is fascinating, particularly in wake of the college admission scandal. So I I kind of wonder, you know, given your background, your perspective. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you've effectively crossed off the check boxes of like anybody who could get as high as you could get in the
4: education system. So knowing all of that, what do you think about all this? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I love that you're challenging uh, the entire educational system, the way it's set up, et cetera, because. You know, you're speaking to someone who you would think would really support the educational system, yeah. and I say that because, you know, like you said, I raised my SAT score from average to perfect. I started a test prep company, which we, you know, my company Prep Expert. That's what we do for a living. We train students to um, improve their SAT and ACT scores, and then me personally, I mean, I've done just about more education than anyone uh, can possibly do post high school. I I did college at USC, I did medical school at USC, I did business school at Yale. So you would think that, you know, speaking to someone with my background, I would be a strong proponent of the educational system, and the way that it's set up. And the the opposite is, could not be more true. Like, basically, I do not think the way that education is currently set up is the right way to teach students. Uh I think that I have personally learned how to play the game and I am playing within the rules and teaching other students how to play the game in order to be effective at it. But do I think that there needs to be a major paradigm shift? Yes, absolutely. I would say a lot of my education actually has come from outside of school. Mm-hmm. When I was in school, I mean, I would spark notes every book just like everyone else because I didn't like reading the books that were assigned. <laughs> you know, most of the books that I read um, came after school or outside of school. All of yeah. the business books, the, uh, you know, books about self-improvement, et cetera. Like, um, you know, that's what I really enjoyed. it, And, and that's not really taught in school. Yeah. And, you know, for me, like people are like, oh, you're, you know, you have a test preparation company. Right, You should definitely think that the SAT and ACT scores or ACT exams are good tests. And the truth is, I actually think they're terrible tests. You Uh, know, I actually think that the SAT and ACT score does not measure your intelligence in any kind of way. I hate people that say, well, you're smart because you got a perfect SAT score. That's not true. Uh, All my SAT score tells you and all anyone's SAT or ACT score tells you is how much they prepared for that exam. Uh And I got a perfect SAT score because I prepared hundreds of hours for the SAT. And, you know, you may have gotten, like any student may get an average or below average SAT or ACT score. That doesn't mean they're not smart. That means they just didn't prepare, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think they're very, very poor tests in terms of measuring a student's IQ or intelligence. I think that they are necessary evils in the way the current educational system is set up. And that's why we teach students how to ace these SAT and ACT exams. Because look, I personally don't care as much about students getting into these brand name colleges like Harvard, Mm -hmm. Stanford, Yale, et cetera. I care more about students taking my prep expert course, improving their SAT and ACT score so that they get half tuition, full tuition scholarships to, whether it's a state school, I yeah. don't care. I want them to reduce their college tuition burden so that they don't fall into the $1.5 trillion student debt crisis that we currently have in yeah. the educational system. So I think that's the larger problem to fix. Do I think... You know, the, do I think a college education is still important? I think in a lot of ways it is because, yeah. you know, as an entrepreneur, I know how hard it how hard it is. Like people, entrepreneurs will tell you, oh, you don't need to call it. Like I think Gary Vee and a bunch of other entrepreneurs will say, you don't need a college uh, education. Like that's not going to help you. Like just be an entrepreneur. And it's like that's not necessarily always going to work for everyone. Like there's yeah. no way 99% or a hundred percent of the population can all be entrepreneurs. Like we do <laughs> need you know, employees and professionals, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that, and especially I think coming from the Indian American uh, background, like we play it safe, like, yeah. uh, I mean, or at least like it's instilled in our culture, like you need to play it safe. You need to have a backup, et cetera. And you know, I'm not the entrepreneur that went out there and risked it all and risked every single thing, you know, up for my business. I was like still in school. I was still in medical school, you know, while I was uh, starting my business. So I'm not this, the like risk. Risky entrepreneur or the risk taker entrepreneur that you would think of when you think of someone who starts a business. And do I think starting a business is a risk? Absolutely. But do I think you can mitigate it in a lot of ways, such as doing it while you're still getting an education, while you're still, um, you know, working towards whether it's being a professional or having a career? I think that's one of the best ways you can do it is, is do it as a side hustle because look at technology now like yeah. you know we're doing this podcast at night it's amazing um that you're able to you know connect through technology at any time with anyone uh you're in the west coast i'm on the east coast like that was never possible 20 years ago and and that's why i think be, having side hustles and being an entrepreneur is easier than ever because of the way that technology connects us all yeah So, you
5: know, the, the, it's, it's funny to think about, you know, this with you particularly, because I think you and I are sort of polar opposites in terms of how you come out of the system. Like I, you know, I was one of those people who got bad SAT scores, but I think I was really lucky in that I preceded that period in which the standards of the UC system just skyrocketed, right? Like me and my sister always joke. We're like, yeah, there's no way in hell we'd get it. We both went to Berkeley, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, arguably the best of the UCs. And We didn't, we we look at our our scores and we're like, yeah, we wouldn't have gotten in now. Like we had the grades and my sister was really bad at at MCATs as well, but Mm -hmm. she ended up absolutely killing it when she got into med school. Like she was the Mm -hmm. chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. So, you know, like her, it, it was kind of insane to see that the test scores made virtually no difference in terms of how she showed up after that, um, so, you know, the, the thing that, that I wonder, you know, you, you brought up two things. You said it yourself, despite owning a test prep company, these aren't good barometers of somebody's intelligence. Do you believe that enough that you would be willing to forego your business if it meant they got rid of the test? Like, would you be, because, you know, that would effectively, if, if neither of those tests existed, you'd have no business. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that, that, that's, you know, a question that I, out of, out of curiosity.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a great question because, you know, everyone asks me that. They say, well, you know, a lot of colleges are now foregoing the SAT and ACT um, and standardized testing for the admission requirement. And, you know, what's interesting and what every single person misses with this big news story that's happened is that those same schools, like if you look at George Washington University, for example, that you yeah. know is a good university that does no no longer requires the SAT or the ACT for admission, is they still give merit based scholarships based off your SAT and ACT score. So if you forego those tests, you could be foregoing 10000 dollars a year in scholarships, all because like you chose not to play the game or to play the system. So, yeah. do I think that? Uh, you know, I think one, so I think there's two things here. One is it's not really fixing the issue because like I said, what's more important than admission to me is paying for college. Mm-hmm. And so it's not really getting fixed by just removing the SAT and ACT for the admission requirement. Cause right. you still have to give I mean, they're still giving out billions of dollars in scholarships based on SAT and ACT scores. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of it is You know, you asked me, would I forego or would I be okay no longer having a business if they no longer require the SAT and ACT? In a way, yes. But at the same time, I think the bigger question is, can they ever make college admissions fair? And, you know, that is really difficult to do because even if you get rid of the SAT and the ACT. There's so many things, as you mentioned before about like the college admission scandal, there's so many things that are wrong with the process that make it unfair, mm-hmm. that favor the wealthy, that, you know, the SAT and ACT are just one small part of that, Yeah, that, you know, I think there has to be an entire revamp as to how we look at education. And, and one of those things is kind of what I mentioned before, which is people need to stop being so obsessed with these name brand schools. Like, you know, we, you and I went to great schools, USC, UC, Berkeley. Yeah. And the problem is there are limited seats. And as you said, it's becoming hyper competitive uh, and people are going to extreme, extreme lengths now to go to these schools and many others that, you know, I, I talk about colleges are the ultimate name brand luxury marketers like you think gucci and louis vuitton are good (laughs) like oh my god like look at harvard and stanford and yale like they're charging kids sixty thousand dollars a year all for to have you know stanford at the top of their degree it's crazy so like people need to be less obsessed with the name of the school Mm -hmm. and more okay with like This person got a college education. They went to a state college. They chose that because it was the right thing to do to avoid going into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like that's a smart financial decision. That's smart. Like I respect the person that does that, you know? I mean, I didn't,
5: I went back and did it when I was younger. I'd be like, you know what? I would have told my dad, I'm like, you know what? I'm like, you're right. I'll stay here and go to UCR. Uh, I'll, Mm You know,
4: I, I, yeah, I, I completely agree on that. Yeah. So like, and and, you know, I used to be, I used to talk way more about like, you know, you should try to go to these top schools, et cetera. Like that's what your SAT and ACT score can do for you. And I've had a paradigm shift in the way I think about these tests. And what I think is really important is that it's more about paying for college now than it is about trying to go to the best one. Because at the end of the day, a economics class at your community college and an economics class at Harvard are not going to be that much different in curriculum. You know, you're still going to learn uh, basic economics 101. So that's kind of my opinion on it.
6: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash acast and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first purchase.
5: Yeah, you know, it it's uh it's funny to hear to hear you say that because you're you're right. Like we think about it from the standpoint of, of privilege and it's like a really rigged game. And, and as you were saying that, I, I kept thinking to myself, you know what, it's like well, let's not kid each other. We grew up in Indian families that were incredibly nurturing and also drilled this notion into our heads from the time we were kids. That's a pretty significant advantage, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? Like, even if we didn't grow up with wealth, like my dad's a college professor. Mm-hmm. You talk about, you know, instant access, like a, an edge in terms of this process. You know, I mean, my dad is a byproduct of this system. And, you know, we, we have this argument constantly about the value of, of, you know, formal education. But even he now tells his PhD students, he's like, unless you want to be a professor, don't do a PhD. Um, but really? I, I appreciate that you brought up, you know, sort of the the privilege and the fact that it's not just about the test, but there's so many other dynamics here um, at play. And I, I think you're right. You know, it's funny. We had a guy named Scott Galloway here uh, a few weeks mm-hmm. back. You know, he's a professor at NYU, also happened to go to UCLA, you know, started multiple companies. And he said the exact same thing about colleges. He said, colleges are no longer educational institutions. They're luxury brands.
4: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more true, right? Because if you think about it now, like with the internet and open education, you can get any information, you can get almost any class now, like most, of, I think every class at MIT is available for free online, yeah. you know, so it's not like you're getting a huge advantage by going to one school over the other. All that education, all that information is out there. So, you know, why spend so much time, so much money? So much effort trying to go to some of these name brand schools that are just luxury brands yeah. when it doesn't tell you much about the person, mm-hmm. right? I think it's it's more important that the person made a smart financial decision. Um, you know, hopefully that they were able to go to college for either cheap or free because they went to a state school or they got scholarships um, to go to a, a, a better school, et cetera. So you know, I think that is a more telling of the person. And then after that, what do they do with that education? And are they, you know, still learning? Are they still reading on their own? Are they, you know, continually trying to improve and get better? Because now with so much education online, it, there's no excuse not to, like, you don't need to be at a university to be a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
5: Uh You know, I I think that that, uh, makes a really a a perfect segue to talking about it is ironic, but I think part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you was it wasn't about increasing your SAT score, but more importantly, I wanted to understand, you know, what you learned from that process that you've applied going forward and what our listeners could take away from that, um, about how to learn something, uh, and I'm curious if that applies in this case. Uh, and then, you know, how in the world did med? like, you know, you did this on the side of med school and we'll, we'll get to that. I'm very curious about your interactions on Shark Tank and Mark Cuban and all that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of what I think is important or what was really helpful in terms of the process of improving my SAT score is that it taught me a lot of self-control. You know, like I spent an entire summer locked up in a library between my junior and senior year studying for the SAT. And as a 16, 17 year old who, you know, there were plenty of parties going on. There were plenty of things to do in the summer with friends, and for me to you know lock myself in the library for eight hours a day, put away all the technology that there was, is it sort of cultivated in me a lot of self-control. And I think as an entrepreneur, that has been super, super helpful in bringing about incredible productivity and incredible success. Like, you know, there's this famous Stanford marshmallow experiment Mm -hmm. about how they put the five-year-old kids in a room with one marshmallow. And then, you know, I think they did it on like 600 kids. They told the kids, you know, you can either have this one marshmallow now, or if you have enough self-control to not eat this marshmallow for 15 minutes and sit here with it. Yeah and you delay your gratification, 15 minutes, if you can do that, then, you know, we'll reward you with two marshmallows. And like one third of the kids were able to have enough self-control to delay their gratification for that second marshmallow. Mm -hmm. But then they followed those kids for 20, 30 years and they found they were more successful based on a number of measures, whether it was got higher SAT and ACT scores, got higher salaries, were more popular with their peers, had less drug and alcohol problems, were more healthy, um, lower BMIs, like every single thing, you know, they linked it to the trait of self-control. So, I think the big takeaway for anyone, whether you're going through the educational system and trying to study, or you're an entrepreneur trying to work on a business, um, or you're a professional doing your day job, Mm -hmm. like one of the biggest takeaways is like try to cultivate self-control. And I do that still on a daily basis as an entrepreneur. You know, for example, I will go to my office and I will leave my phone in a completely different room. And, you know, I do that on purpose because these you know, these little gadgets we have in our hands every single day, like they are built to destroy self-control. <laughs> like they are built to notify and buzz you all day long about the newest Instagram post or like or Facebook or whatever it may be, or text message, and they destroy all self-control. Like, you know, everyone's in group chats now and you're getting like 80 group chat messages. Like there's no way you can be super productive. And you mentioned like at the very beginning that, you know, you listen to music when yep. you write. And, and I'm sure that like you, you had the same experiences. Like getting rid of a lot of the daily distractions uh-huh. uh, helps you write so much better like it's incredible how much you can you know like yeah. write and get your thoughts down on paper when you don't have your freaking phone buzzing every single minute um, oh, yeah. you know it's it's just huge and people need to be able to get like basically pull themselves away from their phones their technology I'll often turn off my internet so mm-hmm. I'm not even checking email because email is another. Thing that like you love, it's like a it's like a slot machine. You keep yep. refreshing your email to see like what's the newest email coming in. You know, and, <laughs> and really people think they're being productive or... because they're on email, but really you're not doing anything. Yeah. You know, so, um, I would say that's a huge huge takeaway is like try to cultivate that self control to be successful either as a student or as a business person. Yeah, it's funny you, you say that because this is something that I struggled with
5: my whole life, and and you know, it's funny because. <laughs> You're right. I listen to music and usually have my phone in the room. And, and today was one of those days where it just all kind of unraveled from the moment I woke up yeah. because I had a bunch of, you know, people that, you know, wanted to have external meetings with me. You know, like, you know, one of our, our new sponsors, you know, which you guys will have heard by now is called Brain.fm. And if you haven't checked it out, you can check it out at you know brain.fm And I use it because it it works really, really well for focus. But the funny thing is that because I had to talk to them this morning. I didn't get to focus for as long as I wanted to, ironically. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where I I always tell people, if you start your day this way, you're hosed. Like that is, you know, one of those things where it really is. You're you're right. I mean, this is discipline is one of those things and self-control. I think people underestimate the impact of that because they you don't see the effect of it. Like when you do it one day, you may not see the effect Mm -hmm. of it when you do it two, three days, but you do that for two or three weeks. And suddenly you start to very get very clear that, wait a minute, there is like a serious effect by
4: doing this yeah, it's the secret to like productivity, getting it done in the morning, avoiding like people try like there are so many things now trying to steal your time and steal your attention, whether it's an app, an email, a phone call, a person, like you need to figure out how to say no to all those things and, and get back your time, get back your attention so you can be that productive member um, whether it's a school or business or entrepreneurship venture that you're working on. Yeah.
5: So that can't possibly be the only thing that got you from like average score to
4: 1600. No, 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 no. So there, (laughs) I mean, there are a, a lot of interesting strategies and tactics that we, uh, you know, teach at the prep expert courses based on my own experience. Like for example, you know, when I was in the library studying for the SAT, like one thing I noticed was I basically was able to write almost the exact same essay, uh, no matter what SAT essay topic that would come up. You know, a lot of the sentences were the same. I would start the introduction out the same. I would change the thesis a little bit. But like the intro or the first, second, third paragraphs all had the same like topic sentences and end sentences. And so I basically created like a template that would get me a perfect score on the SAT essay every single time. And so, like, that would be an example of a strategy that we teach at Prep Expert. To help students improve their essay scores and we make it very formulaic and very simple mm-hmm. uh you know but i think the reason I, I mentioned self-control is it's actually applicable to the real world like yeah. an essay template's not going to help you <laughs> uh, you know like as an entrepreneur well, etc. But
5: the template yeah. thing is actually fascinating though, because yeah an essay template might not but i mean if you think about anybody who's like super productive and they just produce a large volume of work and they get a lot of stuff done there's a template to how they do everything a template is and part of the reason i think a template is valuable for these kinds of things is that it lowers your sort of cognitive load because you're not focused on you know all the the mechanics of it all that energy goes into the actual creative work right when you do that Mm -hmm. you're not having to think about like even you know when we we do a podcast like all this stuff you know sort of it's already been decided how we produce a podcast like i already know everything that needs to happen so that the bulk of my energy doesn't get put into like the minutia surrounding it gets put into the conversation. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, I think for creativity, like you have to have systems because, and it seems so counter to, you know, what people think of as
4: creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely for writing, it's a great thing. Like, you know, I've written books before and, you know, the reason I'm able to get it done is I'm not think trying to think of new content in a new format to write it every single day. Like I had a very formulaic way that I wrote my first SAT prep book, which was, I was like, okay, I'm going to write the strategy. Then I'm going to show an example. So it was like strategy, example, show, write practice problems using that strategy. And then finally like e- review points. So like, ev- so I just did that 100 times. And all of a sudden I had a hundred strategies with a hundred examples with you know, hundreds of practice. So it was all like very formulaic. And then all of a sudden I had a 400 page book, you know, about yeah. SAT. And it was like, it didn't come all, you know, people think about like writing as this very arduous <laughs> task. Yeah, it's like, you know, it wasn't like that. It's like each day I was like, okay, I'm just going to write this exact template out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it worked really well. Um, but yeah, it, you're, you're so right. With, with In terms of writing, if you can take away... That staring at a blank page you know um every single day like that's the fear that I think everyone has when it comes to writing is like stare, that that white blank page it, it, like it by formulaically creating a way that you're going to format and template your your writing, it can make you so much more productive in in, in you know your writing so much easier to do mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well let's do this
5: i I really want to talk briefly about the shark tank experience I mean you know you've Gotten Mark Cuban as an investor, which I think the funniest thing I ever heard Mark Cuban say was in an interview with Chase Jarvis, he said, You should avoid taking other people's money at all costs. Uh, Mm. And I never forgot that. But I'm curious, like, you know, what have you learned from working with somebody like Mark Cuban that has informed, you know, how you do what you do?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mark is definitely the best shark to get on Shark Tank. And and I say that, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is obviously I made a deal with Mark for an investment in my company. But more seriously is that, you know, when you make a deal with Mark Cuban, you get two things. You get one, access directly to Mark Cuban as a business advisor. And two is access to the entire like Mark Cuban company's team so whether it's working with their business development team their technology team their accounting team uh you know their lawyers etc like there's just so many resources at your fingertips as a company in the mark cuban company's portfolio you know and everyone asks me like "What has mark cuban um you know really done for your business and i will say one thing you know he's done some very practical things one is you know, he was able to double our licensing fee on our SAT and ACT courses to our biggest licensor of courses. And so that was huge. I mean, that that was worth a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue immediately. Like that had an immediate impact. Um, But more importantly is, you know, he's really taught me a couple of things as an entrepreneur. One is the power of saying no. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're a billionaire, like Mark Cuban, and you have hundreds of investments, I am sure that, you know, people are trying to get him to do things to get his time and attention, as we talked about, all day long, every day. And, you know, for me, I have a problem. I always say yes, (laughs) you know, like, I'm always like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And like, this person's like, can we hop on the call to do this? And like, Mark is the exact opposite of that. Like, he says no, I would say 80% of the time, uh, and 20% of the time he says yes, and it's for the right things. Like 80% of the time, like he's not hopping on the phone call like with most entrepreneurs, and that's such a smart thing. He'd rather respond to 1,000 emails a day so he can be way more productive than sit on a 30-minute or hour-long yeah. phone call with one entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. So he says no a lot, but he says yes to the right things. You know, For example, I mentioned uh, that we were writing a book about entrepreneurship for kids. And Mark was like, I would love to be involved. I'll help co-author it. I really believe in the mission of teaching kids to be entrepreneurs and start businesses early. And so, you know, that was super cool because he said yes to like co-authoring a book with me. That was awesome. He'll say yes to filming Shark Tank updates. He'll say yes to all kinds of things that really mean a lot. Like for example, just tweeting out huge promotions that we're doing to his 8 million followers, but like he won't do it on little things. So like, you have to say yes to the right things Mm -hmm. and know a lot. Like, I mean, there's a lot of books on this, right? The power of saying no, et cetera. And this is kind of what I'm talking about is like, he's really good at, not letting other people steal his time or steal his attention, and yeah. I think I need to be better about that. <laughs> and you know, like I, I think I'm, I'm too nice sometimes. But it's interesting. We I did an event with Mark Cuban just two weeks ago when we filmed the Shark Tank update. Yeah. And, you know, he was he was talking about you know the nice works in business, and I think you still have to be nice, but you you can. St- you can be nice and still say no, yeah. you know, you can say, you know, I'm just a little too busy right now, but maybe at a later date, et cetera, because I think nowadays it is just too easy to say yes to everything and then get <laughs> overloaded and then people get burned out, et cetera. And, you know, I think now, now I say yes to the right things a little bit more often like doing this podcast yeah
5: (laughs) well it's you know it's funny you say that because like i I probably mentioned this on air before like i'm always amused at you know dan kennedy the copywriter he says he has a sort of default rule for how he filters his email and he's like is this a person who's trying to give me money or is this a person who's trying to get me to do something and that literally is how he categorizes and i was like that's that's you know borderline obnoxious but i realized that yeah i mean there's a lot of stuff that comes in your inbox and you're like yeah you know, is this, you know, to serve, you know, my needs at the moment. And it's not about being selfish. And I, I noticed that with a lot of people, like you look at people like Seth Godin, like he's very clear, like he has boundaries where it's like, yeah, this, these are the things that I say yes to. Uh, and I think one of his, because he's Seth is like, if I have to travel outside of New York, this, this, you know, speaking fee is like four times as much.
4: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seth is amazing. I I mean, I, like I said that a lot of the education I got after was after school and a lot of them were like sets books you know like uh the purple cow is amazing like the product is your marketing i mean he's just uh you know an incredible incredible marketer and entrepreneur but yeah i always wonder that like and, and having now interacted with mark for a number of years is like how luminaries in business are able to filter um what to say yes and what to say no to and i think over time you get really good at it and i'm sure Seth and Mark are two people that are probably masters at it. Yeah, no doubt.
5: Wow. Uh, So I have two sort of final questions for you about this. Uh, You I mean, at at this point, like, you know, you're a doctor, you've got this successful business, you've worked with Mark Cuban. You also grew up in a situation where you are, came from a situation where you saw like what it's like not to have money. You know, what has this done for your own
4: perspective on money and wealth? That is a great question. Yeah. You know, I think that as an entrepreneur who was bootstrapping and didn't have really anything when I was first starting, I mean, I started my business with $900 of scholarship money that I had left over. We had the 25 grand in revenue the first year. I was always so focused on revenue, profit, building wealth. And what I've realized now having uh, a business that makes multiple millions of dollars in revenue now, and we're very profitable and doing well. Is that money can only take you so far, and and I know that sounds cliche, cliche but you know people are like, well, why why do you still um, you know do dermatology residency? Like, and the answer is, I don't have to. Like, I, I certainly could just do my business, and I would be happy at the same time like i love dermatology and so like you have to find your passions and what you love to do day in and day out and for me that is not ne- my passion is not necessarily like you know i i want to do dermatology 80 hours a week i think my passion is to do something different every single day i think the spice of life comes from diversity mm-hmm. and so like people are like well, how would you see yourself doing both? And it's like, I would love to spend a day or like two days a week in dermatology clinic, a day doing prep expert, in my entrepreneur business, a day investing, a day, you know, doing a new venture. And like, if I'm doing something new every single day, I think that will keep my career and life interesting. Mm-hmm. And that is way, way more important than the amount of money that these ventures or things are making. And I think if, as long as you're doing things that you are good at, and and I, and, and, you know, I'm the first person to say, like, I think passion is a little overrated, honestly. Um, you know, like people say, follow your passion. Like, you know, Mark says like, follow your effort. And I say, follow what you're good at, like follow the things that you've put the 10,000 hours in to become an expert at, and no doubt you will be successful if you do that. And so follow the things that you're really good at and and do those amazingly well, and you'll find yourself differentiating from the rest and, and becoming very successful, wealthy, et cetera. Awesome.
5: So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: I think that what makes someone unmistakable is being a master at their craft. I think it goes back to what we were just talking about, which is Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours from Outliers. I think if you want to be unmistakable in your craft, in your business, in your professional career, you have to put in those 10,000 Hours to become an expert and and really to become unmistakable i mean you you mentioned your sister was uh, a chief resident in anesthesiology i think that's what makes her unmistakable she put in those 10,000 hours to become that expert anesthesiologist and and that's why i still do dermatology is to put put in those 10,000 hours to become an absolute expert in the field of skin uh, healthcare and you know i think you have to put in the effort the hours to become an absolute expert in your field, because everyone asks me like, you know, what is the business that I should start? And I think that's the wrong question to start with. Mm -hmm. I think the right question is, what are you really good at? What have you spent 10,000 hours learning to start a business in? Like, you know, everyone will hear these buzzwords like cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, uh, neural networks, and they'll be like, okay, yeah, I should do a business in that, but they don't know the first thing about it. And so if you want to become unmistakable in those fields, you got to put in the 10,000 hours or at least a few hundred hours to start with, or at least a thousand hours to like really become a master at those fields, unmistakable. And then you will have nothing but success if you put in that hours, if you put in those hours and you put in that effort to become that master and to become unmistakable.
5: Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if people are interested or they have kids who are taking the SAT and the ACT, uh, definitely check out our courses at prepexpert.com and If people that are interested in self-improvement, sort of some of the success strategies that I've used to build up my own career in business, check out my book, Self-Made Success. It's 48 Secret Strategies to Become Healthier, Wealthier, and Happier. Awesome. And for
5: everybody listening,
4: we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this
5: episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com/4 keys. Use the number four kEYs. That's unmistakablecreative.com/4 keys and download your free copy.